Our guest today is a champion of one of the most hated animals on earth, bats. His mission is to save these creatures along with the legendary drink of Mexico, tequila. Coming up, the real-life Batman of Mexico. Expanding World in association with the Explorers Club are proud sponsors of this episode of Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher, and the Global Exploration Summit, a pioneering endeavor bringing together the world's leading explorers, sharing cutting-edge technology, and innovations to propel us toward the next frontier in the future of exploration and to make a difference in the future of humanity. Visit GlexSummit.com to learn more about the Global Exploration Summit and the impactful men and women who are the heart and soul of scientific innovation and exploration. This is Life's Tough, but Explorers are Tougher. I'm your host, Richard Weiss. If you're new to Life's Tough, I'd like to welcome you and tell you a little about myself and the show. First of all, I love the outdoors. I always have, and I always will. And I've also been surrounded by explorers my entire life. My father, Richard Weiss Sr., was the first man to solo the Pacific Ocean in an airplane. The New York Times called him the Lone Eagle of the Pacific. Some of my fondest memories were standing out on our lawn underneath the stars with my father telling me how explorers use the stars to navigate. I guess we talked about a few other things as well. And speaking of talking, I host a television show called Born to Explore, It's on PBS stations around the country, so please check it out. And finally, I've been president of the world-famous Explorers Club. Just about every great explorer of the 20th and 21st century has been a member, including Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, Jane Goodall, Theodore Roosevelt. Some people say it's like Harry Potter's Hogwarts, only for adults. I've heard stories that would make the hair on the back of your neck stand up. You see, explorers are the type of people who walk in space, go to the bottom of the ocean, and stand on the highest summits. Scratch the surface of any explorer, and you'll find they're all storytellers. This show is about their tales. Our guest today is Dr. Rodrigo Medellin, who is on a mission to save one of the most hated creatures on Earth, bats, along with the legendary drink of Mexico, tequila. Rodrigo, welcome to Life's Tough, Explorers Are Tougher. Glad to see you again. Uh, Thank you, Richard. This is wonderful to be here today. Uh, Thanks for the invitation. You're you're in Mexico City right now, and the last time I saw you was in New York City, and I remember you saying uh, to the particular audience that you were speaking to, give me 10 minutes and I can make anyone love bats. Now, with uh, obviously, COVID, has that been more challenging? Can you still do that? I can I can still do that. No problem, Richard. The problem here, however, is that there's more and more audiences that need this convincing. Unfortunately, bats have been signaled as the culprits for this pandemic. 
And that is, there's nothing farther from the truth. There's absolutely zero evidence that a bat will give you COVID. And it's not true that if you go by a bat or if you see flies, bats flying by, or you have bats in your house, or you go into a cave, you're going to get COVID. Nothing farther from the truth. But I think bats have been labeled throughout history, or at least um, recent Western history, as being sort of creepy creatures that carry diseases and bite people and get in your hair. So um, I was talking to my wife about this 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 morning at breakfast, and she goes, I love watching bats in the air and knowing that they eat insects. But she said, I don't like the idea that they carry diseases. What, What would you tell my wife? All right. Number one, the image of bat, the negative image of bats is, is actually pretty new, Richard. It was not there 300 years ago. It was not there. What happened was that, you know, that all people think that all bats are vampire bats and they're going to come and suck your blood, et cetera, et cetera. All right. That is absolutely false. And we know that fr- from over more than 1,400 species of bats in the world, there's only three that feed on blood. And those three live only in the New World from northern Mexico to northern Argentina, and that's it. Well, it turns out that uh, when Cortes, Hernán Cortes came to Mexico with his uh, uh, scribes and secretaries, etc., one of them noticed that when they brought the horses first and the soldiers in Mexico, they saw this flying nocturnal little animal that would land on the horses or the, or the soldiers and bite them. He never used the word bat. But then that's the first indication in the Western world about vampire bats. And then fast forward 300 years, go to Ireland and find Bram Stoker writing his fantastic, fascinating novel, Dracula. And in Dracula, Bram Stoker takes that statement from that guy 300 years before, and he uses it to let his vampire, which is a Serbian term directed to humans only, no bats there. There's no connection between bats and humans to who are feeding on blood. And then he makes his vampire turn into a bat fly to where the girl is and then bite the girl on the neck. That is a moment when the image of bats comes climbing down horribly. And also, there's been a number of uh, scientists accusing bats of having more diseases than any other group of animals. Well, uh, fortunately, last year there was this paper in which they showed that that is not the case at all. If you want to know per unit species, what is the single group that has the largest number of pathogens? Just look outside the window right now, Richard, because it is the little birds that are songbirds that are jumping up and down in your trees. Those guys are carrying more diseases. Are we going to kill those those birds? Absolutely not. It's ironic you mention that because I've just put two additional bird feeders outside of my windows <laughs> and uh, we have two rescue cats and they sit at the window all day looking at these birds. And I love looking at these birds. I see woodpeckers and, and I really do get a lot of joy out of, out of looking at that. But how did the bat get the reputation in, uh, at least in Hunan, China, as being sort of the originator of, 
of COVID? Um, a lot of the research that has been done on emerging infectious diseases is in, indeed on bats. But that is because there's some groups of scientists who have taken to heart the fact that bats already have a negative connotation to continue digging and digging and digging and going to government, going to, going to the World Health Organization, going to your own government, Richard, and saying, oh, wow, look, we found all of these new viruses from bats. Bats are bad for you, so have to be very, very careful. This has been pervasive. Some of these scientists were in the United Nations task force that went to Hunan uh, recently there, and they continue to push that message. What we are asking for is a balanced research agenda that looks at all of the other groups as well. And yes, we are going to be finding new viruses. There's so many new viruses in the world that if I do this in my computer right now, I guarantee it. I have new viruses right here, exactly. But 90% or more of the viruses are beneficial to humans, are beneficial to nature because they eat bacteria, more than 90%. So what I am bent on doing is testing what is called the dilution effect, which is the first line of defense to the, towards the next pandemic. You mentioned Cortez, uh, one of his men saw a bat sucking blood off of a an animal. I have been in Mexico. I have seen bats on cows. So these are vampire bats, I'm assuming, uh, which you raised as children, and we'll get into that into a second. But bats do really land on animals and suck their blood. They, they, absolutely, certainly. There's those three species of bats. All of them are about this size. That's all. And they eat maybe two spoonfuls of blood every night. Those bats have been deemed a problem by human beings. But guess what? We made them a problem. Before the uh, Europeans came to this continent, these bats were very rare because they were eating the blood of fairly low density, very rare animals like taper, like deer, like wild pigs, armadillos, etc. But then, of course, when the Europeans bring their cattle, bring horses and pigs and donkeys and cows, etc., that is setting the table for opportunistic animals like this. And we've shown that in, in non-invaded areas of the world, when, when you look for vampire bats there, they're very, very rare. But as soon as, as uh, cattle ranching comes in, wow, their density is go through the roof by two orders of magnitude. Okay, so let, let's just, just stay on that theme for a second. So if a vampire sucks blood out of a cow, and, and I'm assuming it will go night after night because they need blood every day, um, is that harmful to the cow? It may be harmful because it's, 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 it's doing an, in, uh, an injury, a wound on the skin of the animal, but to, to test that hypothesis as well, I had a long-running project testing in the saliva antibodies for rabies of more than 7,000 bats of 34 species, including vampire bats. From those more than 7,000 bats of 34 species, less than 1% had antibodies towards rabies. Doesn't mean that they had the rabies. 
Then we keep pushing the envelope. And I said, okay, so we're going to sacrifice humanely and everything. We're going to sacrifice half of a percent, 0.5% of those bats, and look for the live virus on their brains. Not a single one had the live virus. So we're exaggerating this a lot. That doesn't mean that you don't have to be careful. Me and my entire staff, we're all vaccinated against rabies because rabies is something that if you get it, that's it. So we have to be very careful. And I always tell people, please don't harm bats that you find in your house, on the street, whatever, and don't touch them either. If you want to help them, if there's a cat to run or whatever, well, you take it with your gloves or your jacket or a box or something and put it up in a tree and let it there. Leave it alone. That's it. Not touching. Uh, when I was a child, I had three dogs that cycled in and out because one always died and you get another one, a cat and a horse. When you were a kid, you actually raised vampire bats. How did that start? And, and how did your parents encourage this, um, form of pet? It seems a little unusual. Uh, It is a little unusual, I have to say, and I will never stop thanking my family for the incredible patience that they've had over the years. Um, I'm the youngest of five siblings, and from day one, my first word, Richard, was not mama or dada or doodle. It was flamingo. (laughs) That's a tough one. uh, And since then, I've always wanted every Christmas or every birthday, every time we go out for uh, a holiday, whatever, go to the zoo or go to the field to see animals all the time, all my life. Then when I was 11 years old, there was a TV contest in national TV in Mexico. And, uh, and, uh, and, and they, this is a contest in which you choose a topic and they start asking questions and you double the amount of pesos that you get every, every time you answer correctly. So this is a 64,000 peso contest. And I tell my mom, I want to be there. I want them to ask questions about mammals. I can answer any questions about mammals, 11 years old. My mom goes, you go play. This is not for you. I said, I want to go. So she, bless her heart, took me to the producers and the producers said, listen, this is a, this is a, a contest for people who have real information in their heads. That's why there's all adults, not a single child. My mom said, well, ask the, ask the child a question. They pulled out a book and they started asking questions about mammals. And I started responding and responding and responding. Pretty soon they tell me, okay, so congratulations. You're the first kid in the show. Wow. That is great. Now, Rodrigo, before you get on with that story, I have two 11-year-old boys. I'm not sure if I should ask your parents to raise them or you to raise them because that is a p- every parent's dream. You know that. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, once that happened, then I started appearing on, on national TV every Saturday. And at that time, there's three stations in Mexico. So everyone is watching, including the Dean of Mexican Mammalogy, Bernardo Villa, Professor Bernardo Villa from UNAM, and he called me home and he said, well, I see that you're interested in mammals. Why don't you come over to the university and we'll take you to the field and we'll show you for real the animals that you want to see. And that was the moment when they put the first bat in my hand and that sealed my fate. I never looked back. I started bringing mammal bats to the house. But vampire bats. But vampire bats. I would, including vampire bats, but other species as well. 
uh, so I invaded the, the bathroom that I was sharing with my siblings uh, with vampire bats there. You don't want to see the walls of that bathroom because it's splattered with blood all over the place. <laughs> I, I shared a bathroom with three sisters, and I used to consider that I had to be very opportunistic when I actually got into the bathroom and be, and be quick. Now, vampire bats, I know this from a little research, require fresh blood every day. So you have your siblings, you're, you're feeding them blood. What kind of blood were you giving them? I, was go I went to the university again, to the vet school, and they let me bleed cows. The cows have very, a very big vein going down their bellies. So I put a needle there, and I caught the blood in a bucket. And then I whipped the blood with my, with my arm up to here uh, so that the fibrin, which is the protein that makes the blood clot, comes into contact with the air. And then with that, the fibrin collects in little rubber bands that you just take out of the blood and the blood will not coagulate. Then I, I would bring it home. I would take the ice cube trays from my mom's freezer, remove the, the ice and replace it with blood and put it back in there and thaw one little ice cube of blood per vampire per night. Perfect setting. 11 years old, you're doing this. So, um, Obviously, your, your family's supporting that. Otherwise, there's no way that you can continue to have vampire bats in your bathroom. Uh, do you remember who your, your best friend was when you were 11? W what did he say? Absolutely. My best friend is Dr. Jorge Galindo. And he said, oh, my God, you're crazy at first. And then guess what? I turned him into a bad biologist. Up to this day, he is a bad biologist. That is one of the best stories I, I've heard. I hear a lot of stories. And... I'm going to have to pay, play this for other parents because where I live, you raise uh, bats. I feel like where we live, people raise little veals in, in kids that they keep them in these, you know, sort yeah. of uh, dark protected crates as not to expose them to the world. Now, we know that you have this love for bats. When did you realize that uh, bats were also responsible, really, for the, for the national drink of, of Mexico? I, I said early in there that not only were you saving bats, but you were saving tequila. How do you put those two together? That was many years later, Richard. After my PhD, I got my PhD on anything other than bats. I thought that Mexico would not be able to afford to have one person just looking at bats and nothing else. So I got my PhD. I came back and then I started looking at what can I do with bats so that I can improve their public image. And then I started looking at the natural history of some of the species, including the lesser long-nosed bat and the Mexican long-nosed bat that are nectar-feeding bats that we knew that visited agaves, columnar cacti, and so on, but nobody really connected the two. And then I started talking to a friend, Don Wilson at the Smithsonian, and, and I said, you know, these guys must be connected to the tequila industry. Let's go look. And we went and see, and indeed, bats are known to be the best pollinators of agaves, which is the source plant for tequila, for mezcal, for bacanora, for pulque, many other things. So that started a trip in which today we have recovered the species that was endangered in, in, the, in the 80s. It's now recovered. 
I, I saw this fantastic documentary that you were in by National Geographic called the Batman of Mexico. You, you, it's you, actually BBC. Oh, yeah. BBC. I'm sorry. BBC, um, uh, Batman of, of Mexico. And one of the things that I did not realize looking at that, besides bats being the pollinator of agave, was that they travel a lot further than one would think. I, I, I just assumed that bats were sort of static in an area. But there's a migratory path up, I guess, the west coast of, of Mexico that's responsible. What did you find during that study of bats? What was the, the most amazing thing that you found, or at least what you thought? There's so many things that we have found, including that these bats, the, the, the ones that migrate, and they migrate more than 2,000 kilometers from southern and central Mexico to extreme northern Mexico and the southwest of the United States, especially the state of Arizona, uh, that 2,000 kilometers for a bat that is this big is enough of a feat, but leave that alone. Let's go to that cave. That cave has over 100,000 pregnant and lactating females. It's only the females that migrate, not the males. That was another one of the, of the, of the lessons that we learned. The females are the ones that migrate. So I said, okay, so there's no food for them around the cave. The nearest Saguaro field there is about 50 kilometers away. Uh, it's a bat that is this big, 25 gram an ounce or so, able to fly 50 kilometers one way and back. And then we started using ultraviolet fluorescent powder, sifting it on the emerging bats of the cave. And we found out that not only do they go 50 kilometers and back, they go all the way to 110 kilometers away from the cave and they're anchored to the cave, the females, because they have the pups there. They have to come back and suckle that pup. So it's 110 kilometers and back. And all of these they're doing with fuel that is composed of sugar water. Who thought? Who knew? So let me ask the, the naive question then. If they are traveling so far, and we're talking in miles, like 35 miles from, from their cave, what happens on days where there's strong winds in the wrong direction, rain, storms, hurricanes? I mean, it seems like there's a lot of things that can sort of happen, and, and there's predators also after bats. So how is it that, that they're able to do that? What is it the adaptation? It's a very dangerous trip. It has to be, it, 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 and we've seen this every so often, every four or five years, there is something going on in the desert, in the Sonoran Desert. Uh, for example, three years ago, we got a terrible case of a Sirocco, which is a very, very warm, very hot, Winds. very dry wind, very strong wind that blows through the desert. Uh, well, I was, I was with my students at the research station that we have up there, and guess what? The bats that never come into that, to that station started coming in, coming in in droves and just hanging from the walls like that. And to my heartbreak completely dying within five minutes, 10 minutes. And then next morning when the Sirocco was over, we hiked to the cave and we found bats impaled in the spines of the cactuses because the, the wind had blown them into the cactuses. This is uh, unfortunately getting more and more frequent because of climate change. 
I don't know what the situation is going to be in five or 10 years, but we are monitoring the population. The population seems to be fine, seems to have recovered since then, but we have to keep looking. You know, speaking of monitoring them, uh, a couple things struck me as um, I've seen you go into caves, into these huge caves that are completely dark and that you go in there with completely dark. You wear um, rubber boots that go up to your knees. You walk through, you know, uh, thick guana, which is the uh, guano, which is the uh, poop that the bats and yet you feel you look very calm it's it's a hot humid place it's got a smell and 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 you are sort of using the same kind of methods of almost echolocating to sort of walk around in that cave how how does one get to that point you're you're not fearful of being mistakenly hit by bats hit by stuff falling off the ceiling the feeling of being inside a bat cave in absolute darkness, you close your eyes and you open your eyes and there's absolutely no difference. It's one of the most peaceful feelings I have ever had, Richard. It's just amazing. The level of, of calmness, you take a deep breath and release it. And it's absolute peace there. But yes, it is, it is an acquired taste, I have to say. <laughs> Not many people will, will like it. But I have had the chance, the incredible opportunity that I take my students into the cave and I leave them in there and I say, I will come back in five minutes. Just turn your light off, be in absolute silence and I'll come back and find you. And just, just soak in that, that darkness, that peacefulness the little bits of squee squealing of a bat here and there or the occasional bat that flies by you. Just soak it in. Every time they come back with a heart full of experiences and passion and love for the bats. It's amazing. I, I think, you know, that earlier question, who should raise my children, you or your parents? I think I'm going to have, I'm going to send my kids to, to Mexico, you know, have, have you, you raise them. On that subject of monitoring, I have had the um, honor or pleasure of putting satellite collars on jaguars. I've done bears, all, all sorts of that, great white sharks. But um, bats, I would imagine, would be a whole level of challenge just because of their size and weight. How do you monitor uh, the distances these travel? This is, this is one of the greatest, most wonderful things to be alive in the 21st century because technology is advancing at such a pace that we are producing a, a new generation of GPS units powerful enough to be like the one in your cell phone that connects to a satellite and the satellite sends you the information of where the bats are. We are testing this new technology in Israel right now, and we're going to apply, in, apply it next year. Once we have the test that shows that these GPS units work, we're finally going to know the exact stepping stones that these migratory females use on their way up and on the way down. This is something that has been in my mind for 30 years, and I don't know the answer yet. So, I mean, that's going to yield, obviously, information. I just want to take it a little closer to home. I live in Connecticut. In the summer, when I sit out on our deck, we have dozens of bats I see sort of uh, flying out of the trees, and, and I, I think they're getting moths. Um I like that idea. I don't feel fearful. I'd like to actually 
increase the numbers. How can I make my yard more bat friendly? Oh, there's lots of things that you can do, Richard. On the one, uh, uh, first, we need to promote this message that you should not be afraid of bats. The fact, the fact that bats are flying around you is telling you that you're living in a healthy environment. And they are taking the mosquitoes and other, other pets around you. That's good. So the other thing that you can, of course, do is put up bat houses. We have a very big program of bat houses here in Mexico City, and people are enjoying it very, very much. Not only that, mark your calendar, Richard, because in the fall, we are going to have bat-friendly rice. We are working with rice producers only two hours from my house here in Mexico City, and we are putting up bat houses in the rice fields and showing to the farmers that bats are responsible for more than 60% decline in the pests of rice. So that rice is going to be labeled, this is bat-friendly rice. And, and I know that you've spoken, because Mexico's a big corn-producing uh, country, that you've I've seen you speak to farmers and people about that and how they protect uh, corn crops. So um, we just have a couple more minutes. So I have to ask you, uh, we mentioned tequila in, in the uh, beginning of the show. I'd be remiss without asking you your favorite tequila. I'll, I'll maybe have the rice and tequila. I don't know if that's a combination, but Absolutely. I suppose we could. A- any favorite on the tequila there from Mexico? Or you like them all? Absolutely. No, no, no. I like, I like the ancestral artisanal tequilas. And one tequila that you can really get everywhere in the U.S. is tequila ocho. Tequila Ocho has won all these awards and it is bad friendly. So you're, you're going to be, you're going to be doing a very good uh, favor to, to the bats, to your favorite drink and to the ecosystem. Well, I didn't say it was my favorite drink. It's maybe like the back guano, uh, maybe a little bit of an acquired taste, but Rodrigo, thank you for being on life's tough explorers are tougher. I, I, I feel such, um, optimism after speaking with you. you you really have an enthusiasm for a, a subject that may be not so popular like dolphins or or polar bears and all that other stuff but you do it with such grace and elegance I, I I really enjoy speaking with you thank you Richard thank you so much it's been a pleasure talking to you and I look forward to more conversations okay every great expedition has to come to an end. But that doesn't mean we can't stay in touch. Send us your favorite expedition pictures and tell us about your most memorable journeys, large or small. All right, get something to write with. Here are my coordinates. www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. One more time, www.lifestuff.com slash explorers. That's it for today. Hope to see you out on the trail.